Hi, and don't be alarmed at this American voice popping up. You're in the right place. Philip will be along with the history of European theater in just a tick. At the moment, he's busy talking to my listeners. We've arranged a sort of an exchange, doing promo spots on each other's podcasts. So, while he's over at my place, so to speak, I'm sitting in his chair, talking to you. My name is Peter Schmitz, and I write, produce, and narrate a show called Adventures in Theater History, Philadelphia. On this show, we try and bring you the best stories from the deep and fascinating history of the theater in the city of brotherly love. We start in the 18th century, when Philadelphia was the theater capital of the young American Republic. We really dive into things in the 19th century, when besides being home to such American stars as Edwin Forrest and Louisa Lane Drew, the city played host to such visiting European actors as Fanny Kemble, Edmund Keane, Sarah Bernhardt, and Henry Irving. It was the early home of John, Ethel, and Lionel Barrymore, the famous acting family that you have likely heard of. In the 20th century, Philadelphia was often the starting place for Broadway shows, trying out before going on to New York, which is why such American classic plays as Death of a Salesman, Guys and Dolls, and A Streetcar Named Desire actually had their world premieres in Philadelphia. There are so many other stories to tell, and, well, we try and tell them all, and we have a lot of fun doing it. We mix in a lot of music and use the voices of local actors, and since I'm a former actor myself, I often try out all my best accents and my funny voices, too. You can find us on every podcasting app. Search for Adventures in Theater History. Oh, and being Americans, we spell theater with an E-R at the end of the word. Oh, Okay, now I hear Phil coming back. I think he's done talking to my folks, and he's got another lovely and well-researched and erudite show for you. Enjoy the history of European theater. And when you're done, come on over and check us out, too. Look for Adventures in Theater History, Philadelphia, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 99, The Two Parts of Tamburlaine the Great. Last time, I talked about the great change that occurred in English plays as the relatively recent combination of blank verse and iambic pentameter came into use by the London-based playwrights, with Thomas Kidd and Christopher Marlowe, with his mighty line, being at the forefront of the movement. Now, it's time to see it in action and look at the impact it had. Marlowe's Tamblaine the Great is a play in two parts, an early example of a writer responding to popular acclaim by giving his audience more of the same. But for all of that mercenary motivation, and the fact that the first part was conceived as a standalone piece, they do work well as conjoined pieces, so I'm going to look at them together in this episode. The plot, showing the relentless rise to power of a leader who then became corrupted by that power, is pretty straightforward, and it is the overarching themes that are the most interesting feature of the play. The two plays first appeared in print in late 1590, having been registered with the stationer's office in August that year, and first performed probably a couple of years earlier. It's generally accepted that they were written in 1587 or 1588, close to their respective first performances. That printed edition doesn't credit Marlowe as the author, a not uncommon feature of the time, 
and indeed attribution to Marlowe doesn't come formally until some years later. But there is no doubt that this is Marlowe's work. The themes and the use of language bear striking similarities to his better identified plays, so much so that the attribution is not seriously contested. The plays were reprinted in 1592 and again in 1597, then in 1605 and regularly ever since. The original printer, Richard Jones, added a short introduction to his volume, which suggests some minor editing on his part. He said, Gentlemen, and courteous readers whosoever, I have here published in print for your sakes the two tragical discourses of the Scythian shepherd Tamburlaine, that became so great a conqueror and so mighty a monarch. My hope is that they will be now no less acceptable unto you to read after your serious affairs and studies, that they have been lately delightful for many of you to see when the same was showed in London upon stages. I have purposely admitted and left out some fond and frivolous gestures, disagreeing and, in my poor opinion, far unmeet for the matter, which I thought might seem more tedious unto the wise than any way else to be regarded, though happily they have been for some vain conceited fondlings greatly gaped at. What time they were showed at upon the stage, in their graceful deformities. Nevertheless, now to be mixturated in print with such matter of worth, it would prove a great disgrace to so honourable and stately a history. Great folly were it in me to command unto your wisdoms either the eloquence of the author that writ them, or the worthiness of the matter itself. I therefore leave it unto your learned censures, both the one and the other, and myself, the poor printer of them, unto your most courteous and favourable protection which if you vouchsafe to accept, you shall evermore bind me to employ what travail and service I can to the advancing and pleasing of your excellent degree. Yours most humbly at commandment, Richard Jones, Printer. I quoted the opening lines of the prologue to Tamburlaine Part 1 last time as the announcement by Marlowe of his intent to present some serious drama, but it is short and powerful and I think worth repeating here in the context of the play so I'll give you the full prologue now. From jiggling veins of rhyming mother wits, and such conceits as clownage keeps in pay, will lead you to the stately tent of war, where you shall hear the Scythian Tamburlaine threatening the world with high astounding terms, and scourging kingdoms with his conquering sword. View but his picture in this tragic glass, and then applaud his fortunes as you please. Act 1 opens with Mycetes, the king of Persia, declaring that he is so aggrieved as to be lost for words, and he hands the stage to his brother Cosro to relay his troubles. Cosro tells us how a band of outlaws following the command of a Scythian shepherd called Tamburlaine are raiding into their great kingdom. The fact that Mycetes cannot express himself immediately singles him out as a weak king, and as we soon see, his family and advisers speak freely to him about his shortcomings such disrespect to a king being something quite unthinkable to the English Elizabethan mind. In fact, Mycetes is portrayed as quite a comic character, and the audience are expected to laugh at him. The king says, Well, here I swear by my royal seat, only to be interrupted by Cosro's, You may do well to kiss it then. Mycetes is well aware of the criticism of his rule, and he debates his fitness for the role of king with his lords before dispatching his captain, Theridimas, to deal with the problem of Tamburlaine and his band of men. 
After the king departs, Cosro remains with three lords, who describe the unrest in the kingdom and offer Cosro the crown, which he accepts. The scene ends with all proclaiming to Cosro, God save the king. Scene 2 opens with Tamburlaine declaring his love for the Egyptian princess Xenocrate, who is his captive. His men praise his stature as a commander, and he recalls his lowly origins. A soldier arrives, announcing that a thousand Persian troops are close by, double the number of men at Tamburlaine's command. Theridimas and his men enter, and with a long speech Tamburlaine persuades him to join with him against his king. Here's just a short flavour of the speech. Forsake thy king, and do but join with me, and we will triumph over all the world. I hold the fates bound fast in iron chains, and with my hand turned fortune's wheel about. And sooner shall the sun fall from his sphere, than Tamburlaine be slain or overcome. Draw forth thy sword, thou mighty men at arms, intending but to raise my charmed skin, and Jove himself will stretch his hand from heaven, toward the blow, to shield me safe from harm. Cosro opens Act 2, asking his lords about Tamburlaine, and the account is so glowing that Cosro resolves to join him to overthrow Mycetes. Following their exit, Mycetes and his advisers enter, and, having heard of his brother's betrayal, plan to meet the joined forces on the battlefield. They devise a plan to throw gold coins at Tamburlaine's soldiers as they assemble. They assume that they be no better than thieves and vagabonds, and who they can then easily defeat as they would be running around in ill-disciplined distraction, searching after the money. Tamburlaine and Cosro meet, and Tamburlaine promises Cosro the throne of Persia once his brother is defeated. They hear that Mycetes is close at hand, and Tamburlaine discovers the king hiding his crown in a hole in the ground. Mycetes offers it to him, but he refuses to take it, saying that he will only have it once it is won fairly in battle. With Mycetes defeated, Cosro claims the crown of Persia, making Tamburlaine his chief in command of the army. Cosro departs for the capital, and Tamburlaine resolves to challenge him for the crown. Cosro is shocked when he hears of this challenge to his position, and resolves to fight Tamburlaine to the death. The next scene opens with Cosro running from the sounds of battle and cursing his defeat. He fights with Tamburlaine, who kills him and takes the crown. Act 3 opens introducing new characters, the Turkish emperor Bajazeth and his wife Zabina, and the minor kings who owe him fealty. Their men are besieging Constantinople, portrayed here as a Christian outpost. He rhetorically warns Tamburlaine not to enter the Turkish lands of the Balkans. In the next scene, Tamburlaine overhears Princess Xenocrate being urged by Lord Agaidas to refuse Tamburlaine's affections, but she insists she wants to be his wife. As Tamburlaine reveals himself to them, Agaidas realises that he has been overheard encouraging treason, and he stabs himself to avoid the pains of torture. Tamburlaine is victorious in battle with the Turks, and imprisons their former king and his wife. Act 4 opens with Xenocrate's father, the Sultan of Egypt, promising to stop Tamburlaine's advance with the help of his son, the King of Arabia. In his court, Tamburlaine has Bajazeth, who he has kept in a cage, and Zabina brought before him. He declares, There while he lives shall Bajazeth be kept, and, where I go, be thus in triumph drawn. And thou, his wife, shall feed him with the scraps my servant shall bring from my board. For he that gives him other food than this shall sit by him and starve to death himself. 
This is my mind, and I will have it so. Not all the kings and emperors of the earth, if they would lay their crowns before my feet, should ransom him or take him from his cage. He feeds the ex-emperor scraps of food like a caged animal and only lets him out so that he can use him as a footstool to climb to his throne. Bajazeth and Zabina try to remain dignified despite this bad treatment. Tamblaine vows to take Egypt, but agrees to his wife's appeals for pity of her father, and agrees not to kill him, but to make him a tributary king, and to increase his lands within the empire that will soon be his. Tamblaine's army, ever increasing in size, is besieging Damascus, and the governor of the city sends out a group of virgins to plead for mercy. But Tamblaine ruthlessly has them all killed, and their bodies displayed on the city walls. When he has left to join battle with the king of Arabia, Bajazeth despairs and kills himself by dashing his head against the bars of his cage. Zabina discovers his body and is distraught. Her descent into near madness is signified by the only lines of the play that are in prose rather than blank verse. She too commits suicide in the same manner. When Xenocrate finds their bodies, she is horrified by the blood now on her husband's hands. The play ends with Tamburlaine defeating the King of Arabia and confirming his all-powerful position but treating the Sultan of Egypt mercifully. Tamburlaine crowns Xenocrate Empress of Persia and charges his lords to rule his lands wisely. The play is very loosely based on the military exploits of Timur, who conquered swathes of North Africa and Central Asia, including modern-day Egypt, Syria, Iran and Afghanistan, in the last part of the 14th century so looking back a couple of hundred years across the known world to a place that might have seemed very exotic and mysterious to most Elizabethan Londoners. Marlowe portrays him as Scythian, suggesting origins in the northern coast of the Black Sea, but he also uses Tartar, suggesting a link to the East Asian Mongol tribes, which implies that Marlowe's knowledge of the true history was quite limited. Timor was a brutal and cruel conqueror who treated any who opposed him ruthlessly, but he was also a great patron of the arts and supporter of education and learning. Possibly it was this starkly opposing duality in Timor's nature that attracted Marlowe to the historic character. As for his having risen from being a humble shepherd, this is a construction of Marlowe's, or perhaps a general misunderstanding of the time. Timor was almost certainly of an aristocratic line that traced itself back to Genghis Khan, although it is true that in life Timor played this down in order to promote his Islamic credentials, and he presented himself as from minor aristocracy. Deciphering the true Timor is fraught with difficulties of trying to unpick self-promotion and hagiography and the defamation of his enemies and the defeated. And in Marlowe's time, Timor was already a semi-legendary figure. The prologue to the second part of the play says, The general welcome Tamburlaine received, when he arrived last upon our stage, have made our poet pen his second part, where death cuts off the progress of his pomp, and murderous fates throw all his triumphs down. But what became of fair Xenocrate, and with how many cities sacrifice he celebrated her sad funeral himself in presence, shall unfold at large. As the second part of the play opens, the kings of Anatolia and Hungary are promising to uphold their truce in the face of Tamburlaine's advance into Anatolia from Egypt, signalling that Tamburlaine is still, as we left him at the end of the first part, a strong and aggressive leader. 
but Tamburlaine is not going to have it all his own way. Celepine, the son of Bajuzeth and Zabina, has been held prisoner by Tamburlaine since the death of his parents. But in the second scene of the play we see him persuade his jailer to set him free, and he exits, promising revenge for his parents' cruel treatment. Tamburlaine is teaching his three sons to be conquerors like him. We hear how he continued to attack his neighbours and expand his empire. Two of his sons are clearly cut from the same cloth and are eager to go to battle. But his third son, Caliphas, is not happy to risk death and wants to stay at home with his mother, an attitude that displeases Tamburlaine greatly. Theridimas and the other generals from part one meet with Tamburlaine and prepare for the march on Anatolia. Sigismund, the king of Hungary, says that he will break his treaty with the Anatolians while they are distracted with the preparations to fight Tamburlaine. But the Anatolians defeat Sigismund's army and attribute their success to Christ, as Sigismund had broken a vow made in his name. Tamburlaine learns that Xenocrate has fallen gravely ill and he rushes back to be with her. Despite his pleading and threats to her physicians, they say they can do nothing and she dies. In anger and grief, he burns down the city and refuses to allow it to be rebuilt. This, he believes, will show his sons a good lesson in fortitude. Calapine has gathered a force of men loyal to the tributary kings for revenge on Tamburlaine for his gross misdeeds, and they have crowned him emperor of the Turks as a direct challenge to Tamburlaine. The Ridimas and his generals sack towns on the Anatolian border. Calapine meets with Tamburlaine, but rather than negotiating, each side simply threaten and boast and posture at each other. Act 4 opens with Tamburlaine's sons trying to convince Calapine to fight in the coming battle, but he still refuses. Tamburlaine is again victorious, but on his return discovers that his youngest son stayed in his tent during the battle and didn't fight. He is enraged at this behaviour and stabs his son, saying... By Muhammad, thy mighty friend, I swear, in sending to my issue such a soul created from the mighty dregs of earth, the scum and tartar of the elements, wherein was neither courage, strength, nor wit, but folly, sloth, and damned idleness, thou hast procured a greater enemy than he that darted mountains at the head, shaking the burden mighty Atlas bears, whereat thou trembling hiddest thee in the air, closed with a pitchy cloud from being seen. In a sign of disrespect, he orders the Turkish concubines to bury his son. In a sign of his ever-increasing despotism, Tamburlaine reports that he has come on his chariot, pulled by the former kings that he has defeated in battle. Tamburlaine and his army reach Babylon, but the city resists attack. He murders the governor, hanging him by chains like a common criminal, and rounds up all the women and the children in the city. He ties them together and throws them into a lake. He follows this ever-increasing savagery by ordering the Quran to be burnt, declaring that he is more powerful than any god. After his victory, he says he feels distempered, and soon it's clear that he is very ill. A messenger tells him that Calapine has regrouped an army and will soon attack. Tamburlaine leads men to scare them off, but he is too weak to pursue them. He retires to die, and concerned for his legacy, declares his son Amurus as his successor, but as he dies, Amurus is concerned that he will never be as great as his father. When thinking about the themes of the plays, 
the position of God in them is probably a good place to start, especially given the conflicting reputations of Marlowe and his beliefs. It is possible to see the plays as having conventional and orthodox Christian views of the central place of God in the universe, but this is far from clear-cut. Those who attempt to usurp God's power are brought down. Tamburlaine's Ark is one that ends in death, and that only comes about after he has declared himself greater than God. He quickly then falls ill, so his demise is not at the hand of man, but at God's will through an unspecified illness. But this, of course, is only at the end of part two. If we assume Marlowe did not intend to write a play in two parts, and this was indeed a response to the success of part one, then actually his intention was to leave his protagonist on a high, having conquered several kingdoms. And even at his death at the end of part two, all is still not quite clear. Does Marlowe see his demise as just the misfortunes of a man, or as the hand of God? Of course, the Greek influence on Marlowe is also at play here. This could be punishment for hubris and overambition, and the play could easily be seen as the overmighty falling to the power of displeased gods that would have seemed familiar to Aeschylus and Sophocles. Coming close to passages where Tamburlaine denounces God, his swift demise certainly looks like retribution from on high, but still Tamburlaine manages to rise to the occasion. Even in death, he retains his dignity. In his almost final words, he hardly sounds defeated, but wise, proud, and expecting heavenly reward, as he says, Now, eyes, enjoy your last benefit, and, when my soul hath virtue in your sight, pierced through the coffin and the sheet of gold, and glut your longings with a heavenly joy. And his son's final words only increase the feeling that Marlowe could not let admiration for his protagonist go. Meet heaven and earth, and here let all things end. For earth has spent the pride of all her fruit, and heaven consumed his choicest living fire. Let earth and heaven his timeless death deplore, for both their worths will equal him no more. And some may well have left the theatre feeling that some cursing over his body, even desecration of it, or calls for a rising against his dynasty, or some overtly Christian intervention, may have been a much better way to end the play. Tamblaine himself must have appeared a shocking sort of hero for the Elizabethan audience. List his traits, and we come up with cruelty, ambition, a capacity for violence, and intense passion and self-belief in the extreme. He is a romantic anti-hero. But we have to remember that Elizabethans probably held the ruthless and the strong leader who was prepared to lead his men in battle in rather more admiring terms than we might do now. Some critics have argued that Tamblaine is presented in such a shocking way and so completely obsessed with conquering his enemies and with expanding his domains that the contemporary audience could not have been expected to understand his motivations. But this might be underestimating the audience. Even for the uneducated, there was at least some folk knowledge about eastern potentates who did terrible things and salutary tales about great kings who overreached themselves. They had the Queen's father as an example of a king who took on some great changes and shook society up to its core, with his reinterpretation of Catholicism, so maybe this was not so strange to them after all. You could say that all that is missing from Tamburlaine is an overtly and often expressed religious justification for his actions. And this is part of the complexity of Tamburlaine. There is no simple, morally instructive lesson to the play. 
He breaks many moral codes that might have been expected of a leader. Restraint of passion, mercy to the defeated, respect for former kings. This is a very different message from the theatre of the preceding years and the medieval period as a whole. And yet, this hero was eloquent, at times thoughtful, even philosophical. In that philosophy, he questions man's place in the universe and ignores traditional morality. He, by the force of his will, declares himself not to be an impotent cog in God's universe. He says he can craft and maintain his own course and is optimistic about human advancement, but which is, of course, in the context of a huge world empire governed by him. But again, Marlowe doesn't present us with a straightforward view. There are things to admire in him, but at times his actions are and are clearly meant to be repugnant. We are meant to admire his passion, and we can understand why men follow him, but still find his attitudes and ruthlessness unacceptable. Kuzro, Theridamas and the other lords are easily persuaded to forsake their loyalties and follow him. We are meant to see him as a charismatic individual, while at the same time seeing that he offers a different type of morality that doesn't have God at its centre, but man. This is not humanism as we know it, but influenced by new philosophies coming from the universities and the continent that Marlowe was well aware of. Tamburlaine's failing is in letting his power and ambition pervert the legitimate questioning of the world order. So an interesting speculation is if Marlowe was persuaded or forced, at the end of part two, to give Tamburlaine a proper death, and an end that somewhat rode back from unorthodox views. Either way, I'm not sure that Marlowe found the ending he did write too difficult to live with. It does follow the historical facts that Timur's dynasty soon crumbled after his death. Tamburlaine's end is in a Greco-Roman tragic mould, and he is given fine words to end on. That, I think, might have assuaged any reluctance Marlowe may have had. While discussing themes and underlying meanings, we shouldn't forget that this is also a drama with a heavy dose of bloody violence. Battles are reported by messengers and the participants after the events, but sword fights, stabbings and bloody suicides are shown on stage. There is nothing squeamish here. The violence and extreme nature of these actions is, after all, part of the point. Power and ambition pervade the plays. However, this is not just in Tamburlaine's ruthless pursuit of new lands to conquer, but in his relationship with Xenocrate and with his children. The power that allows him to murder the virgin envoys of Babylon and to drown the women and children of the city is meant to be seen as unchristian, because it is unjustified. Again, perhaps not as shocking as we might think, these were people who were used to seeing the heads of traitors spiked on the city walls to slowly rot, and who had lived through a period of the public burning of heretics, but that was, in some sense at least, legal and quasi-justified, depending on your point of view. Marlowe's intent is surely to at least expect the audience to question their attitude to Tamblaine's actions and justifications. We certainly have to wonder if Tamburlaine's passion for Xenocrate is really love, or just some sort of perversion of his obsession for power. When he declares his love for her, it is in terms of power and wealth. Later, he spares her father and appears distraught at her early death, but otherwise ignores her restraining influence and pleads to temper his actions. He has three sons, but only describes them in terms of courage in battle and ability to stand up to others. 
Perhaps in terms of a ruler wishing to create a dynasty, this is not so unexpected. But even more challenging for the audience would be trying to question if the murder of his own son is in any way justified. In a militaristic society, how should dereliction of duty be dealt with? Or are we just seeing the weakness of a father who has no means to express love or loyalty to his family? We can certainly say that he is reluctant to put his familial concerns above his military ambitions. The excessive appetite for power is a character flaw in the best Greek and Roman traditions of tragedy, and as such was surely intentionally placed there by Marlowe, but not necessarily with a direct relationship to the deaths of Xenocrate and Tamburlaine. There is no deus ex machina involved here. As already observed, the gods, or god, are significantly absent in the plays. But perhaps with the introduction of the thread of family concerns, there is something more subtle going on here. It is through Tamburlaine's relationships with his wife and his children that some critics argue that the plays are actually a psychological study of his key motivation, the establishing of a dynasty. Xenocrate is particularly interesting because she is of Marlowe's invention. The historical Timor had many concubines and made several strategic marriages, but Xenocrate, Marlowe would have us believe, is a matter of love for Tamburlaine. Xenocrate is already his prisoner, so the marriage is of no strategic advantage to him. But he does adjust his plans and turns his attention to her father's lands. Once again for him, this looks like a battle for total domination of her family. Although he is relatively generous to her father, like a dutiful son-in-law, she is still seen in terms of a battle to be won. The ongoing conquests in part two of the play could be seen as Tamburlaine's means to grieve for and honour Xenocrate after her death a theme prompted by the mention of her death in the prologue that I quoted earlier. He burns the city where she died for no obvious strategic reason and compares the death of all the women and children of Babylon to Xenocrate, now barren in death. For Tamburlaine, the personal life and the political military life are becoming dangerously mixed and Marlowe's audience may have alternated between being horrified but then titillated and being shocked but then enthralled, perhaps even becoming a little ashamed of their admiration for such an egotistical tyrant. And that is probably exactly what Marlowe was hoping for. So when we look over these two plays as a whole, there is a central dilemma that makes them interesting, and to really appreciate them, we have to get back into an Elizabethan mindset. Tamblaine is admired by Marlowe for his courage and his strength, for his kingship, but he is a despot and inhumanely cruel in pursuit of his ambition. Marlowe's skill as a playwright is his ability to get the audience enamoured with the positive aspects of his personality as they would have seen them, while, in the end, presenting his anti-Christian actions as abhorrent. There seems little question that Tamburlaine was held in great regard by Marlowe's contemporaries. Many of the characteristics that Marlowe endowed him with start to appear in plays by other dramatists, and plots and settings begin to lean towards the historical and the exotic. No doubt that was prompted by the popular and therefore monetary success of the play, but also, I think, from genuine admiration of the quality of the drama and the language. The plotting is tight, the characters well defined, but Marlowe's abilities with crafting blank verse were the real turning point. The language is both beautiful and overwrought. Others would be more subtle in their use of blank verse and also bolder in experimenting with the flexibility of the form, with mixing it with prose and other poetic forms 
as part of character expression and development, but it was Marlowe and Tamburlaine who showed them the possibilities and led the way. Next time we encounter more thoughtful but dramatic and exciting theatre from Christopher Marlowe as he dives into a world where a man will sell his soul to the devil. Yes, Dr Faustus, the most performed of Marlowe's plays in modern times, takes us to some very dark places as Marlowe continues in his study of the ambitions and excesses of men. In the meantime, please join the Facebook group or page or find us on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with the podcast and other theatre-related stuff. If you'd like to help support the podcast, the easiest thing would be to pass the word to anyone you think might be interested in a bit of theatre history, or if you have a moment, write a review and rate the podcast in your app of choice. You can find details of other ways to support the podcast at the website, which is www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com. There's also additional content on Patreon that you can access for a small monthly fee. I look forward to your company next time, but if you do have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 